This is an ABC podcast. It's the hospital system that's under strain. And I think when it comes to medicine, it's particularly at risk of burnout. Research has found that around a fifth of junior doctors in Australia are considering leaving medicine. A real tragedy to the system to lose someone that could contribute to the health system. That's a trend that we're seeing going in the wrong direction. Burnout in medicine has been a long-running issue even before the pandemic. Luckily, there's a new code coming into play that can help protect all workers, including junior doctors. It's really, really overdue, so I'm glad to see this. I'm hoping that if we can improve the well-being of these doctors through this code, that there'll be more retention. You've no doubt watched the videos on how to properly pick up a box and how to not trip over a cable. All those hours spent on online training modules to make sure we don't get a physical injury from work. But what about our minds at work? How are they being looked after? Hello, I'm Lisa Leong, and today on This Working Life, a new code coming to your workplace. It's been labelled as world's best practice by leading legal practitioners like Ian Neal SC, an employment and industrial law barrister. It's a very important step. Codes of practice in themselves are significant. They're regarded essentially as evidence of what is known about a hazard or a risk or risk assessment or risk control and a demonstration of what's reasonably practicable to address those hazards and risks. So Ian, how should we be approaching this new code? I would advise anyone to study the terms of the code seriously and to do everything reasonably practicable to comply with the recommendations of the code. One would depart from a code of practice at one's peril. The focus for a very long time has been on physical hazards, physical risks, physical injuries, and and no doubt that's because they're the most obvious. Mm. But for a long time now, there has been a recognition that work, like every other human environment, generates risks to people's psychological health, welfare. And that recognition, I think, grew substantially during the years of the pandemic, not just in connection with work, but in connection with all aspects of our lives. People came to see, perhaps many people came to experience for themselves for the first time directly the sorts of pressures that human interactions and environments can bring to our psychological health, to our psychological welfare. It's out of that environment that the code of practice has come. And my prediction is that regulatory authorities, now that this code has been promulgated, will give real attention to these kinds of injuries. What are some of the other lessons that you think would be useful and that we can learn from what's gone in the past with physical hazards that we can apply now to psychosocial hazards? The first and the most important of them, to my mind, is the identification before the event, the identification of the risk or hazard and a conscious and conscious thought about how that risk or hazard can either be eliminated or ameliorated these sorts of hazards and risks, or that hazards and risks as such, having been identified, can then simply be ignored as being something that is inevitable or inherent in the job. It it won't any longer, hasn't been, but certainly now, won't any longer be available for anyone involved in a process of that kind to say, well, stress, anxiety, worry, 
and so on is just an inherent and inevitable part of any significant change and there's nothing we can do about that. That just won't be good enough. Do any specific industries jump to mind that might particularly benefit from this new code, Ian? Potentially law? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, uh, Lisa, can I duck that question? (laughs) (laughs) Look, there are really the risks of one's psychological health and wellbeing are as varied as human activity is varied. Just as there are all sorts of occasions in which physical risk manifests itself. Our work health and safety laws, much criticised as they are. Why? Sometimes they are said to be too onerous, sometimes said to be not onerous enough, sometimes said to be ineffective, sometimes said to be to impose obligations that are too general and not sufficiently specific, sometimes said to in the other way, that the obligations they impose are much too particular <laughs> and, and deflect attention from a wider, more holistic consideration of risk. I've heard all of these arguments. But if one takes steps back and just has a look at the way our work health and safety laws have operated now really for the last 40 or 50 years, I think it would be fair to say that they have been remarkably successful in bringing to the fore an appreciation of the importance of taking every reasonably practicable step to either eliminate or reduce risk. Those same forces brought to bear as they have now for decades, focusing on physical injuries, one would expect to see the same forces brought to bear on the sort of psychosocial injuries that the code is talking about. So psychosocial hazards are basically things that happen at work that may cause psychological or physical harm. That's Dr. Richie Sinha. I'm an associate professor of organizational behavior at the University of South Australia in the business school. So, Ruchi, in this new code of practice, they've identified four factors that could cause psychosocial harm. What are they? They are the extent to which your um, management of your work in terms of how the jobs are designed, whether they're too much demand or control. And um, in terms of your work environment, this is the kind of support, resources, um, and flexibility and autonomy you have. And the third factor is the workplace interactions. This is the extent to which you face microaggression, bullying, violence, and harassment at work. And the last one is plant at the workplace, which is looking at the actual physical structures to make sure that there are safety around the machinery, around the layout, and the environmental conditions at work. And these hazards can cause psychological and physical harm. What falls within the harms or injuries resulting from psychosocial hazards? So from these factors in the environment, which is the design, the work environment, interactions and the structures, they don't directly cause psychological harm. What they cause is a stress response. So in reaction for prolonged, severe presence of these hazards creates stress. That stress can have both cardiovascular and muscular skeleton. So having pains in your neck, bones, joints, and having blood pressure and cardiological issues come from an extensively long chronic stress. Similarly, your feeling of exhaustion, burnout, anxiety, depression, these are psychological reactions to stress. code of practice about psychosocial hazards pretty much reads like the job description of a junior doctor. 
it's funny, I never wanted to be a doctor because I didn't want to do shift work, but now here we are doing ridiculous hours. Hi, my name's Dr. Hannah Sefcik and I'm the current chair of the Australian Medical Association's Council of Doctors in Training. I don't think I've experienced burnout. I don't think so. It's tricky because I think it's also normalised in medicine a little bit. I think there's a few things that can contribute to that. There's, of course, just the long, long hours that we work, but there's also other things that contribute. So a lot of doctors in training and junior doctors don't always feel valued by their, you know, their workplaces. They feel like they're just another cog in the production line. It's all about service delivery. And a part of that is that lack of job security. Often we're applying for the jobs every year. You don't have that ongoing contract. So there's that lack of value. It's also just a very high stress job. You know, there's a lot of pressure lying on that. There's a lot of life or death in the hospital. And there's also that risk of moral injury. And I think all of that contributes to burnout. So you're just trying to care for your patients, but you're totally exhausted and in a thankless job. There is risk at that. And some of the things I'm highlighting here are actually in the code of practice about psychosocial hazards. That's a long time junior doctors, from my perspective, feel that they have to just be tough to get through. They can't be weak. They need to have the support of their supervisors. But by having it in the code of practice, then it's recognised as a risk. The reason this is so important that addressing these issues, these psychosocial safety issues in workplaces, these psychological hazards, is important because it does have that ripple effect. So, of course, If someone's being bullied, they're exhausted from long hours, they're not feeling valued, they're burnt out, that impacts that person, that doctor. It impacts how they can contribute to the team, but it also contributes on patient safety. You know, for starters, if a doctor is totally exhausted, they're probably not making the best clinical decisions. But also if there's tensions within those teams, say they're being bullied by a supervisor or they don't feel safe to escalate and ask for help. And that's not a safe working environment for the patients either. So addressing these risk factors is so, so important. Now, Richie, let's get our heads around how this works and the four categories that psychosocial harm can come from. First, design or management of work. I was interested in one of these subcategories, lack of role clarity. Can we go deeper on that one? So oftentimes when people um, look at their workload or their jobs, they need to work towards certain goals. And role clarity is when you don't know where you're going. You don't know the why and you don't know what you're going after. And so, you know, you have a position in a place, but the clarity comes from whether those goals are realistic whether they are specific, whether they are measurable, whether they are time bound and whether they are explicitly articulated versus left for you to figure out. And then another example is poor organisational change management. A lot of organisations are going through restructures and a lot of change. So what would fall under this? So 
change is just part of organizational life. It's part of our life outside of work. But with change comes uncertainty. And with uncertainty, you have a stress response because all human beings psychologically have lesser stress when they have a sense of control. So when there's high uncertainty, when the reasons for the change or the implementation of the change is not clearly communicated, where the rationale is not communicated and you're not provided the resources to be able to go on that journey while that change is happening before certainty arrives is when you get the stress response. The second category is workplace interactions and behaviours. What jumps out for you in terms of this category and what you're seeing in the workplace? So for my own research, and I've done a fair bit on these jobs and demands and how it affects well-being and stress, the workplace interactions is a form of resource as well as a hazard. So when you have good trusting mutual respect and shared leadership with your peers, that provides as a resource to manage the stresses of work. At the same time, when your everyday work interactions have microaggressions where they're not inclusive, there's incivility and bullying, people are impolite, rude, and to the extent that they're bullying and there's sometimes aggression or lack of acceptance and inclusion, all of those then become hazards. So you take the structural aspects of your job, you take the design and and change aspects of your organization, and then you add this layer of stress, which is everyday workplace interactions being just unpleasant and having long-term effects on your psychology. And then the third category of work environment, who's responsible for remote working Remote working is something we've all been thrown into an experiment and we've tried our hand at it. Um, we've learned a lot and it's now time that organizations take responsibility and so do employees. So remote work means a far greater need to communicate. Remote work means that the work environment, the culture, the climate that was built from face to face may become diluted. So building a virtual work environment where predominantly your employees are remote is going to need a strategic, considered and a deliberate effort from both parties, the organization, the HR, as well as the employees. And how might this turn into psychosocial harm? So once again, the work environment can be both a resource that helps you buffer the stress response from the demands you have at work. The environment could come in terms of the extent to which you are recognized, rewarded, whether you provided the professional development and skill development and so forth, as well as the um, interactions that form the environment. And then let's go to the category of plant. What is covered by this? I have to be honest, when I first saw it, I thought we were talking about planting a garden at the workplace. <laughs> I really do think that's a brilliant idea. There are companies around the world that have built gardens for their employees to manage stress. <laughs> so traditionally, if you look at manufacturing, a lot of the work health safety and hazards framework comes from there. And at that point, it was basic things like the systems, machinery, you know, the entry and exit of employees, the break time, the layout of the environment, whether there's electricity, fresh air, light, all of those were physical aspects of your environment that falls under this plant at the workplace. But I still think planting a garden is a good idea. As long as we don't trip over the pot plants, because that's a hazard. <laughs> yes, that is. It should have a walking path in the garden. So let's reflect on this. There's a new code coming into practice. What do you see this doing to our landscape and our workplaces? 
I think for a very long time, organizations and leaders, executives have struggled how to manage psychological health, mental health of employees. And for a long time, they were unclear about what are their obligations and responsibilities as an employer versus what they should do because it's the right thing to do. I think this regulation adds that layer of here are your obligations. If you don't look after your employees in terms of burnout, and their, you know, rising level of cynicism or potentially have interventions to prevent suicide and other stress disorders, then you are liable in some form or way for enabling poor mental health. You mentioned the role of regulators. How will this be policed? Does it require or rely on whistleblowers? It can do, but doesn't necessarily rely on that. All jurisdictions, Commonwealth and state, have inspectorates whose purpose is to investigate and take steps to ensure compliance with work health and safety legislation and obligations under that legislation. They can have brought to their attention risks or the manifestations of those risks by a variety of ways. There are reporting obligations, for example, that participants in the workplace have to report risks and and injuries and so on. There are all sorts of sources of information that regulators have available to them. And in unlike physical injuries, many psychological injuries aren't as obvious, right? That will influence the way in which the code of practice or obligations identified in the code of practice are investigated and regulated. It's also an interesting explanation for why it is that the recognition of psychosocial injuries, hazards and risks has lagged behind the focus on physical hazards, injuries and risks. They're just not as easy to see. Where does our code sit in terms of the global recognition of these psychosocial hazards in? The code itself in its present terms, I think it would be fair to say, would be regarded as being best practice in the world at the moment. However, it's come in some cases very long after other places in the world have recognised these risks and, and acknowledged them in this way. So at the moment, we're right up there with best practice in the world, but it's taken us a while to get there. And so given this is the world's best practice code, where can you extrapolate this going? What's the opportunity here for us in and our organisations and our workers? There are countless studies that emphasise the benefits to employers of employees who are psychologically healthy, engaged, productive, free of stress, anxiety, worry, and so on. And of course, the benefits to employees themselves of being free of those sorts of difficulties are obvious that they go without saying. But there are countless studies that emphasize the heavy social and personal and economic and financial costs that poor psychosocial health welfare has had for everybody and the enormous benefits that accrue to everybody, to every participant in the workforce, if those sorts of problems are effectively managed. And do you have a final message about this new code and its significance and what people can do about it? Take it seriously. That is my first and it is the single most important message. This has been coming for a long time. It has now arrived 
And now is the time to take it seriously, to think about, to identify, to assess risk to psychosocial health and wellbeing, and to think about ways of addressing that and to implement those things. Take it seriously. That's the overwhelming message. Rushi, do you see any particular hiccups or hurdles when it comes to the code working in practice? Oh, I'm sure there's a long, long list if I had the whole day to tell you about that. I think the hurdle that's not going to be is the box ticking exercise. I have no doubt that there will be forms and websites and reporting procedures about measuring and reporting on this thing. What would be the biggest hurdle is to translate that into everyday language, into everyday behavior, into everyday uh, lived experience of the climate. So a lot of the manifestation of these things is in how people speak about this topic at work. And you teach MBA students and deal with a lot of high achievers. What does high achieving, successful and potentially gender issues when it comes to being vulnerable enough to talk about this? Yeah, you bring up a very important point, Lisa. Um, There's a lot of research to show that there are employee assistance programs, there are initiatives at work, but the actual take up, whether people opt for these services is gendered and is driven by a lot of self and social stigmas. So um, let's take a few that we know from research. So the gendered script for men in most societies is about them being strong, self-sufficient, action-oriented, being in control of their lives. And any stress response where they feel that they're not in control, they feel uncertain, they feel they're helpless, they feel weak, they need a support either technical support or social support, those go against their stereotypes. And we find that that self-stigma is not that someone's telling them overtly that they can't do it. It's they themselves have that stigma about behaving in non-ideal gendered ways. Women, for example, we know face microaggressions at work. They are not included. They, especially women going through, you know, could be childcare responsibilities, IVF, menopause. These are topics that we know are part of gendered stress responses. They don't speak up about it because then they'd be seen as making trouble. And they'd seen as these are feminine topics and therefore they are not to be discussed. So once again, the diversity and inclusiveness climate is what makes people safe to speak up. The fundamental lever that most organizations have is to create a climate that promotes psychosocial health, that is, promotes well-being, promotes inclusion. And to take a top-down approach is to make sure that you are role modeling these behaviors in your policies, practices, systems, the kind of professional development you provide, but you're role modeling it in the type of leaders you select, in the type of leadership style that you reward and promote. So you could have all of these written in policy documents, but not a single person role modeling those behaviors in reality. So climate is what determines what is acceptable and unacceptable at a workplace. And now making psychological harm unacceptable is where the opportunity lies. Thanks to my guests and to sound engineer Kerry Dell and to producer Zoe Ferguson. I'm Lisa Leong. Thanks for listening to This Working Life. 
If this episode has raised any issues for you, the number for Lifeline is 13 11 14. This working life is made on the lands of the Bidjigal people of the Darug Nation and the Wiradjuri people of the Kulin Nation. Next time on This Working Life, how to harness the power of the weekend for your upcoming work week. You know, there's a lot that's happening in the brain. I mean, one of them is that we actually learn things over time. We don't just learn things while we're in the moment. Sleeping helps you learn. So you will actually solidify some of the knowledge that you're picking up at work by just getting away from it and sleeping. And so vacation time, even even a weekend's vacation, does all of that for you by, by allowing you to get away from from the details of what you're doing leads you to to take other perspectives on the work because you've forgotten some of the details and now you might actually be reminded of something else you know that might help you to to solve a problem at work. You know, your brain is sort of working behind the scenes on some of this. And so giving your brain that chance to just idle a little bit sometimes allows you to to remember things that weren't coming to you when you were just focused ruthlessly on the work that needed to get done. Until next time, work it, baby. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.